I'll make it an offer formally. You should all come to Palestine. You should bring your families. You should show them. Because in a way, it'll, it'll help them understand humanity in a very honest way. It'll help them understand injustice in a very honest way. And it'll also help them sort of participate in how to be better humans. Um, especially, especially just because you have the privilege of being American. And there's millions of people who would be dying to come here. And I think to come see it and understand it and interpret what this means so that when we go back, we're not just talking about Palestine as an idea, but it's an actual place with actual people. Today at the cafe, we have a very good friend, Manha. This is a, uh, an activist who is of Palestinian descent, born and raised in this country, studied international law and decided that, that probably better for him to be in Palestine at this point in time where he is involved in human rights. He's an activist. He's also a photographer. The Arab American Cafe podcast aims to surface a unique perspective. The Arab American perspective. Perspective that should be heard. And it is worth learning about. Join Muhannad and Hassan at this cafe, talking about stuff, debating and discussing relevant issues while sipping coffee. I've been always curious, man, uh, what uh, what led you to, to, to take this course in your career, or at least at this point in life in your career? What was the driving uh, force behind that? I think the, the course I took was a very unexpected one in the sense that I really never knew what I was sort of getting myself into. But it basically all started after I graduated undergrad, where I had studied political science and was anticipating to go to law school. And I ended up going back to Palestine for the first time as an adult um, and for the first time by myself to take a, a class in Arabic. And what happened was sort of just a, a recalibration or sort of like a, a revamping of my identity by, by sort of by force in a way, just because I had for the first time experienced Palestine as an adult. I was able to sort of see the place, not just as an idea or as a metaphor, but actually participate and interact with it. And it also happened to be 2014, which was one of the bloodiest years in the Gaza Strip. Although I was in the West Bank, sort of far away from the violence, it was a very overwhelming experience in the sense that it it properly put my identity in place by showing me sort of what the reality of of being a Palestinian is and, and, and seeing sort of the, the, the truer picture sort of far away from the TV screens um, in the U.S., which was sort of how I had understood and, and digested Palestine. I ended up really, really enjoying it and seeing how I could find myself sort of comfortable and purposeful there. And I ended up um, going back to the U.S. to get a master's in international affairs where I studied international law. And I have been um, working with the human rights organization here since basically uh, campaigning and, and doing research with things in relation to the human rights crisis in the occupied Palestinian territories. So, man, it's very impressive and very interesting when we talk about uh, Palestinians, many of people that do not live in the area or, or do not have a clear understanding are not fully aware of what we mean by that. The, the very few people know that there are almost more than 6.5 million Palestinians that live in that 
strip of land and they're literally distributed into very smaller pockets. Almost 2 million are in Gaza, about 2.6 million live in the West Bank. In Jerusalem, there's close to 350,000 and then all over what is called the the Israeli uh, state is is 1.6 million. That has started at some point when you know, we, we all know history. We know the 1948, the, the Four Promise. We know uh, how history has evolved to where we are now. But there was a major turning point probably with the basic law that was in 2018. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the basic law. I mean, I would like to hear from Man about the living condition of the Palestinian in those different areas of uh, the historic land of Palestine. But uh, yeah, the basic law, yeah, that's when they decided that the state of Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. And uh, you, you got to be Jewish to be able to live in that land and uh, the, the the nation state basic law applies to the areas classified as occupied territories uh, according to the international law so it's basically explicitly implemented in the green line territory uh, where you have about 20 percent of the palestinian i mean you cited the numbers over there so the impact is really huge vis-a-vis the palestinians so um i mean maybe man can expand and enlighten us a little bit more about what does that mean in a lot of ways the 2018 basic law the nation state law just how can i say it it just uh, formalized a reality which was very, very much already in existence. I mean, the law basically explicitly said that the state of Israel is is for the Jewish people, and then at the same time, it had a, it had a caveat by saying the law itself is uh, the the settlement of the Jewish people in the state is of the utmost importance. It also uh, decreased the status of Arabic from a sort of uh, core language to the state as sort of just a, a secondary language and basically exacerbated what was a very unequal and discriminatory system that had already existed. Uh, it it kind of formalized the discrimination, didn't it? It made it, it, made it into the law, correct? Yeah, in, in not even just the law, but in the constitution of the state, it basically sidelined about 20% of the population, 20% of the indigenous population who... Uh, historically have been living in Palestine. In a lot of ways, civil society from within 1948 Palestine was working very diligently to stop the law and it was unsuccessful. But then at the same time, it it, it showed and you could hear the echoes of the law itself as well as how it entrenched and exacerbated what I have basically said is just years of inequality and discrimination. Uh, unfortunately, the law is still in, in practice. And I mean, Um, It should be no surprise that this is not the first discriminatory law. It's not going to be the last discriminatory law. Um, The state of Israel has been succeeding in land dispossession, in settlement expansion, in layers of occupation through military uh, military orders, through these sort of things. So in in another perfect world where laws are built on justice and they go through checks and balances that unfortunately is not the case here where the Supreme Court, the Israeli High Court, the Israeli Supreme Court in many cases is actually sort of the iron fist to rubber stamp discriminatory and um, entrench further discrimination. Um, and that is what was seen in 2018. And, you know, it, it the state of Israel and the Israeli authorities are pushing the boundaries, I think, as much as they can and seeing just how far they can budge before there is any sort of uh, reaction. 
Can you can you be a bit more specific going through examples about the living condition in occupied territory in Gaza, maybe in Israel proper or the, you know the, the Arab of 1948, uh, like like their the day to day living conditions. Yeah, the numbers. I think using the numbers as an analysis does sort of an inadequate job, just because it really is a very very tiny piece of land with very very different sort of rights. So, for example. The 2.5 million Palestinians who hold West Bank IDs, in a lot of ways, experience and live with the occupation and the discriminatory and apartheid measures that the state of Israel provides in a very different way than somebody, for example, in Jerusalem, who lives a very different reality than somebody in Gaza. But I'll say how I can understand it best is in the West Bank, you're basically under a very tight military control, meaning... If I want to go to Bethlehem or Bethlehem, which in theory should only take me 25 minutes, there's a more than likely chance that it'll take me an hour and a half just because I'm going to be stopped at two or three checkpoints, just because there might be um, uh, a flying checkpoint, which Israeli soldiers will put up in the middle of the road. They might just shut down the road, basically a container checkpoint that will just shut the entire south of the West Bank off from the north of the West Bank. And then at the same time, Somebody in Jerusalem, so my ID, my, my green West Bank ID does not allow me to enter Jerusalem, even though it's less than six miles away from my house. But there is 350,000 Palestinians living in Jerusalem who in a lot of ways are, you know, the, the state of Israel called them permanent residents of Jerusalem. But they're living uh, sort of in a very tight, condensed, almost ghettoized neighborhoods of uh, of in and around uh, the old city of Jerusalem. Their version of the occupation is very bureaucratic. Their version of the occupation means you have to pay specific taxes to exist in a city that you're in. You have to be dealing with settler groups filing uh, law, law lawsuits against you to steal your property and house using uh, shady, dodgy uh, legal frameworks. You have to um, prove your residence or else you will lose your ID and become stateless. While a Palestinian in Gaza, and this has been used so many times, but I don't know another way to say it, just lives in an open air prison. They can't leave, they can't enter, they're stuck. There's two million of them living in the most condensely populated place on planet Earth. Water pollution, any sort of resource allocation is completely marginalized. They're living under the de facto Hamas government, who in a lot of ways doesn't care for them as a, as a people. But in the same way that Palestinians living in the West Bank live under the de facto uh, Palestinian Authority, who don't receive benefits in terms of citizenship. I mean, I'm not receiving the benefits as somebody, for example, in another state might receive. While the 1.5 million Palestinians who are living inside Israel, like we mentioned in the 2018 law, are by all intents and purposes just second-class citizens. There has been no Palestinian city that was built since 1948 inside of Israel, other than townships that were created to um, cleanse out the Nakhlab Desert to have Bedouin communities move from their semi-nomadic herding uh, communities into different communities so they could basically clean out the Nakhlab and, 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 and in, in theory just ensure Jewish supreme, uh, supremacy inside of the Nakhlab. So in a lot of ways, every Palestinian by every ID card they hold lives a very different Palestinian reality. One thing that is, is honest in all of the realities is that they're dominated. They're under the control of either the military, the state apparatus, or um, a mix of both, basically.
So, man, there is no doubt what you are describing is a clear definition of discrimination. Here in, in the U.S., we always talk about prejudice and discrimination and racism as they translate into day-to-day -day life. And as health professionals like Hassan and I, we always link that to health care, access to health, uh, well-being and all that. Um, all these, let's say those that live as second-class citizens inside the Israeli uh, territories, if you want to call it that, probably do suffer on, on a daily routine from practices of in, in employment and in access to food and access to health care. Uh, some of these that are the basics that would affect them tremendously. Would it you say that this is part of, of the two-class system, if you want to call it that? It's almost so clear that it, it can be murky, but when you really just look at what, what is given and what is granted to whom and to why, uh, it becomes less muddy. Basically, if you are Palestinian, you are treated not as a citizen of the state. You are treated as a permanent resident. And if you, this is for East Jerusalemites, for example, if you happen to be privileged enough to be an Israeli passport holder or a citizen, you still are facing second class, a uh, second class reality. Because like I said, you um, as a group living in, in Nasr, for example, you've never been able to expand the borders of Nasr. You're not allowed to develop out your city. When literally next door, you're watching Israeli uh, settlements and colonies basically grow and flourish, all funded and, and, and sort of um, subsidized by the state, where uh, it is very clear. And I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of good sort of uh, talking uh, rights in terms of talking points. I mean, you have um, the right to health, right to water, freedom of movement. You have basically any sort of basic needs or, or, or livability is completely infringed and marginalized because of the, the the domination regime, you can call it, by the state. Can we uh, talk a little bit about or expand a little bit more about the occupied uh, territory? So over there, we know that uh, they've been slowly and gradually adding more and more settlement, more and more settlers, and uh, a, lot, a lot of land uh, is being uh, stolen, confiscated, stolen. Uh, and then there's the separation barrier, uh, you know, and the fact that uh, those settlements are uh, under Israeli law, whereas uh, they're, they're, you know, illegally, uh, while illegally built and all that stuff, still, you know, you could you could see them connected to the state of Israel in terms of not only the law, but also the infrastructure, the water infrastructure, the electrical grid, the, the communication network, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so basically, uh, there is a clear uh, discrimination between, you know, the group of people who live uh, on this land uh, as Israeli settlers and the rest of the everybody else, the Palestinians who live in that, uh, that land, the occupied territory. You've been there, right? You've visited this place. Can you give us a bit more clarity? Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a very dynamic place. And I mean that because I'm speaking to you from uh, a small village right outside of Ramallah called El Bire, where my, my partner lives. And you can spend a week here, and if you don't leave Ramallah, you would not really know that you're under occupation. The second you leave, literally, five seconds after you leave Ramallah, you'll see a soldier, you'll see an outpost, you'll see settlers, you'll see a settlement, and you have this sort of reminder. Think of it, and I'll give you a Michigan example. 
basically think about a trip from Farmington Hills to Detroit and every instead of every shopping plaza think of a very beautiful neighborhood uh on top of a hill with a military fence surrounding it jeeps um and a watchtower anytime you see a shopping plaza and that's basically your road in the in the west bank and those are settlements so for me to get to for example uh a nature hike that I went to today I passed probably about 6 or 7 settlements I passed about 10 or 15 soldiers I passed about 100 settlers who were just camping and casually walking as if the reality is uh you know as if I'm living in Switzerland or something um and they know that because you know they're armed I saw their pistols they're under the the sort of security of the state their soldiers nearby uh they're entitled enough they're entitled enough to believe this land is theirs and that they can do it with it what they want and basically what you see and even within my short time living in Palestine for the last 5 years I've seen settlement expansion I've seen what didn't used to exist as a a row of 300 homes in a neighborhood now being a new settlement I've seen communities where I speak and I do work with I've seen how their reality is is shape-shifted because of settlement expansion. I've seen how the previous administration um and the current administration has done absolutely nothing, and I'm talking about the US administrations to stop it, even though they're the ones who are claiming human rights, transparency, justice and all of this hackifaldi. So the OPT is a very uh, dynamic place. It's um in a way it's the most obvious place that you're under occupation because you see soldiers and you see settlers your interior for example i can tell you the story about me trying to get vaccinated it's basically just trying to go through a myriad of um checkpoints and soldiers and uh, and no sort of transparency in terms of trying to get a vaccination because i have to go back to michigan in a few weeks you know so the the checkpoints that they are giving out luckily if you can get a slot or inside of a check the the vaccines are inside of a checkpoint to get to Jerusalem the city i was born in you know i'm privileged enough to have a permit that lets me enter Jerusalem but most people my age there's no way there's no way they would be able to enter i have family that lives in Kalendia refugee camp who Jerusalem is uh the old city of Jerusalem is four maybe five minutes driving they haven't seen it Before we leave Jerusalem I want, to, I want you to Yeah, I want you to tell us about yeah. what's going on in uh, Hayy Jarrah. What's what's happening over there? They're trying to take away Yeah. I mean, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah is Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, like I said, this place nothing is new. Yeah, nothing is new, nothing is old. It's a, it's a, it's the same old pattern. It's it's settler groups, um mostly non-governmental groups that are quasi-governmental in the sense that they're they're tied to government sort of institutions um proactively working to displace Palestinian families in East Jerusalem for the sole purpose of making Jerusalem Jewish al balata that's what they're doing how they do it is they use like i said laws that are established constitutionally uh decreed inside of the state to basically do land grabs i don't know the exact situation in Sheikh Jarrah but i imagine it's a settler group had found out that the um lease of a house that a Palestinian family was living in was either ending or was under sort of a uh an absentee sort of listing in the sense because i mean i don't want to go into the history but basically land and property laws here are, are a shit show excuse my french because we were using Jordanian law when the Jordanians occupied the West Bank and then we also were using Ottoman law when the Ottomans were colonizing sort of uh, bled shem so there 
this idea of land and property isn't sort of like a innate thing to the Palestinian people. But basically, the Israeli sort of institutions will play and utilize both Ottoman and Jordanian law and Israeli law to, to their best benefit, acquire land. So these families in Sheikh Jarrah, I think there's 500 of them, are basically at threat of immediate uh, forceful displacement, uh, which basically means that their home, they're going to be kicked out of their home, and their, their home, the state is going to be given, the state will give it to basically settlers who have been suing them and ensuing litigation against them for years. So this was the conversation overheard at the cafe. Please share it and subscribe to the podcast. And email us your ideas and thoughts to podcasts at ArabAmericanCafe.com or join the conversation on Twitter at AA Cafe Podcasts. Thank you.